Well, hey, I think we're uh, we're up and rolling. We're doing good. Uh, how about some uh, some updates from the week, Taylor? How about you? What's new with Hedgehog? Uh, we've been uh, pounding through um, Wallet Connect uh, uh, currently, getting deposits rolling, um, which is fun, and just uh, got like the whatever. We're in this sort of tidying phase, which is nice. Um, but like a couple small bugs that are left, um, and then we should be good to run, which is exciting. Awesome. Uh, how about you, Morgan? Have uh, what's new with Hopscotch? Yeah, we've kind of gone full force into our B2C development. So that means UI connecting to scalable KYC AML system with Quadrata right now, and then connected to kind of a scalable pricing system with hash flow in terms of instant settlement, zero slippage uh, kind of feature set. So it's kind of like we're starting to put it all together. And um, we just kind of got done with some UI mockups and uh, the good, the, there's, there's the good news and then there's the bad news. The good news is that like things look good <laughs> And the bad news is that I am not a JavaScript developer, and that is definitely not in my future. So it's 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 you know it's it's humbling <laughs> uh, to have my code be called garbage once again. Uh, I'm just happy it's on the front end side this time, and not you know on the back end critical pricing side. Yeah. Nice. That was That's that cool. was quite funny. <laughs> yeah, it sounds exciting though. Like uh, when you get to the point, you're making things look good. It's Pretty close, right? Yeah, it's been fun. Certainly, designing a UI that's you, know, you try to be a little bit different in some ways, and and sometimes there's a trade-off of like usability and certainly visuals. And one of the trade-offs that we've made is you know we we want to be able to offer certainly cross-chain functionality and you know be able to convert a lot of different assets. And we had the choice between you know building the connectors page that you see in terms of like a Uniswap transaction or kind of a cross bridge transaction where you're like you know, selecting all your different chains or different assets and different fees. And we opted to kind of get rid of all that, at least temporarily, and go for kind of a, a simple kind of like chat GPT-esque uh, mm. query box where you simply describe what you're trying to do. And it's made it easy from the development perspective because we don't have to build in all these different logos and emblems and everything, this and that. Um, but at the same time, now we've got to do the conversion process from saying swap one thing to another from this chain into that chain uh, and be able to convert that into kind of a realistic swap uh, on kind of the hash flow uh, platform. So it's, it's, it's new challenges, which is always very exciting. Man, that's awesome. That sounds really cool. Uh, you know, I think you're going to be excited this week too. This one, uh, we, you know, we kind of opted to talk a lot about decentralized finance, which I know is like right up your alley. Um, so I kind of collected a, a couple questions from, you know, um, actually some people I know who are interested in cryptocurrency, maybe don't know that much. And some people who don't know anything about uh, cryptocurrency and, you know, I've always kind of had a mild interest. Um, so like the first thing that came up when I mentioned decentralized finance was, you know, okay, so it's called decentralized finance. What is the difference between decentralized finance and centralized finance? And why is that important? <laughs> just <laughs> Start like with the big one. Gone, just like <laughs> straight into the meat, right? <laughs> 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 um, hey, well, you two are the best. Well, I, I was actually going to say, like, uh, if you're talking to people who are just like sort of on the peripheral, um, mm -hmm. just like kind of interested and whatnot, like, I think um, 
it'd be, uh, uh, well, I don't know if you want to uh, tell this story, Morgan, or whatnot, but like, I think it'd be interesting to hear like how you sort of got started and like what piqued your interest in crypto. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, so I used to be a hacker and I kind of went down the hacker rabbit hole and I got in trouble for hacking. I got a felony for computer fraud and, um, you know, kind of classic hacker story. I got caught by the FBI and I was developing Android malware at the time in terms mm -hmm. of functionality that could do anything. And the currency of choice in that environment, you know, at the time was Bitcoin. And that was just the everyday way you would transact. And so kind of that's what got me using the rails of crypto. Um, I was in no way kind of an advocate for investing in it or anything else. I simply had to use it to be able to transact in that environment. And so certainly with a lot of different technologies, it kind of starts on, you know, malicious actors and people in the underground kind of using this technology to evade certain things or kind of do things that are illegal. And that's certainly how I got my start in that community. Um, so I have kind of a very different perspective on certainly how crypto has grown and what has kind of like nourished its growth over the years. And from those beginning mm -hmm. years, it was absolutely, you know, those dark net markets and activities were kind of an absolutely kind of like spurring on factor of, all right, why is this technology useful? What does it do? What are the advantages of it versus kind of like traditional currency and bank wires? And then kind of like as we've gotten into this phase of kind of like super growth and super economic activity of like the everyday person is, is, is recognizing kind of what's happening with monetary policies around the world. Um, that's kind of like taken on a whole new kind of monster where, you know, it's much more about monetary policy than it is about, you know, where the origin story of like what this currency was used in the past for, like it has these given qualities to it. How does that compare toward, to kind of what's out there in the market. But like in terms of like your question, DeFi and CeFi, uh, what are the differences? Like I'd say the biggest one to me is like, what are your points of failure? So in CeFi, that point of failure is maybe like a website or, you know, a company. Whereas in DeFi, it might be a contract or, you know, 10,000 different nodes across the world. So it's kind of like, it's just got very different trade-offs from the standpoint of like, can I depend on it moving forward? And who do I have to depend on and what do I have to depend on? It makes that a lot easier and more comfortable to be able to depend on something that's supported by, you know, hundreds of thousands of people rather than, you know, 10 executives at a company uh, making the right decision there. And, you know, as certainly has all these other benefits of being more transparent in some ways um, than certainly what happens and what can happen in CFI. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, Morg. Um, like, I was I was thinking about, um, I mean, like, obviously, like, decentralized finance, whatever. If you're centralized, your source of truth is just, like, a single person or a single entity, and you sort of have to put your faith in that entity, right? Um, and certainly decentralized finance, like, has the opposite of that, where you put your faith in hundreds of people or thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people or whatever. Um, and that has, like, its it's massive benefits on the one hand, but it also can have detractors, right? Like uh, uh, I remember when um, it was like a year and a half ago or something like that, a bunch of uh, hedgehog tokens started popping up on Uniswap. Um, and it, I mean, they were scam tokens. They weren't made by us. They weren't done by us. And we were just like, hey, like dude, we contacted Uniswap and the support channel and whatnot. And we were like, hey, these are, these are scams. Like you should probably take them down. And they were like, we can't. 
Like they're, they're, it's powered by a network. Like it needs a shit ton of people in order to take it down. Um, so like it's, you know, it, you compare that to, you know, a centralized entity where like, uh, you know, it's one person or one company or whatever that can be rug pulling you or can be uh, 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 whatever, but you can go after them. Um, then there's a decentralized aspect where there's not really anybody you can go after if you like, if something happens or something goes wrong or, or a smart contract doesn't work or something like that. Um, so there are some like, there's some pretty big trade-offs um, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So the benefit and the curse of the whole thing is that it can't be influenced from the outside, right? Like it's, it's its own, it's its own thing supported by thousands of people, um, relaying data back and forth. And that's what makes up a network. That's what makes it decentralized versus a server farm controlled by one company. You know, so basically we have a database on one side that's held in one central centralized server controlled by one company. And we put our trust in them. We put our trust in their database versus we have, you know, maybe 10,000 people exchanging data using their computing power together uh, and they're running the same code, and those are the rules of that database. And so that's the difference, right, is that uh, that one entity, let's say Wells Fargo, could, shut, could, could say, hey, we're not going to do any transactions today. Everybody's money is frozen. Um, and that's your centralized finance option there. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of conceptualize it even as like um, – if you think about just uh, bullshit that you read on the internet um, or random education, right? Like there's uh, certainly like singular entities that are very trustworthy, like the Wall Street Journal or, uh, you know, insert the reputable news source here, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then you also have sort of community-based news sources. You can think about like Wall Street bets or um, certain Reddit communities that uh, uh, really uh, are a bunch of people putting their heads together and validating something or invalidating something. Um, and mm -hmm. so it's kind of, it's like, it's, it's, oh, that's good. Yeah. I like that analogy. So there's, there's kind of like a narrative that uh, follows decentralized finance that eventually this, these financial tools are going to get to people who don't normally have access to uh, sophisticated, you know, investing tools or financial tools or even banking at all. Like, where does this come from and how, how are these tools going to eventually like serve that population of people? Mm, yeah, this is a good one. It's kind of like one of the most obvious use cases is, all right, there are certain benefits of having a bank account, whether that's being able to onboard to different locations or have a line of credit or be able to take out a loan um, to be able to give those benefits to everyone on the planet is Kind of like connecting the world in a different way. So if everyone has access to these kind of different financial resources, you know, there are impl implicit benefits of being able to use them, like in terms of like starting businesses or you know growing educational platforms, like whatever you want to be able to do. Um, it has benefits. The difference here is that like there's a difference between kind of being a company and bringing those services to a group of people and building tool sets so that you know, a group of people can use uh, those different tools themselves. And I view that as much more kind of like the DeFi framework, like this tech is out there, you can use it. 
Um, there's no one stopping you. There's no one that can stop you from using it. And that is kind of like why it is so powerful. It's not because I have to onboard to Wells Fargo. It's because I am Wells Fargo. It's kind of like the be your own bank mentality. Mm -hmm. And like that is certainly an extremely powerful movement specifically in DeFi, but kind of more broadly in crypto. Um, certainly we have kind of these DeFi primitives built into some of these smart contract chains. But if you kind of expand that and look kind of like a step back in terms of like crypto in general, kind of just the transfer of value on a more like cryptographic basis rather than kind of like company basis and like a bank, banking rails basis, mm -hmm. it, it, it makes it more flexible. It makes it so more people can be involved. And we've seen that whether it's with social networks or um, different online platforms that they've got these kind of like enormous network effects. The more people using these assets, the better. They kind of run on this kind of social consensus. And, you know, like say, take Bitcoin, for example, Bitcoin's no different. You know, if, if everyone agreed that we should raise the limit of 21 million Bitcoin, you know, that would happen. There's a social consensus there. But the aspect of these cryptocurrencies is that they've got this like level of stubbornness, which is mm -hmm. really appreciative, whether that's stubbornness in terms of like changing or stubbornness in terms of like not changing, say with Ethereum in terms of like, you want to have constant change and constantly adapt. You're able to choose between the spectrum of like, hey, what do I want in the value of my money and the value of my property? How do I want to hold that? How do I want to transact that with other people? Do I want intermediaries there or not? And the answer that you usually get to is that like, I don't, it costs more, mm -hmm. more ineffective. It, there's, there's more friction there. And crypto is just kind of this natural evolution of money such that there is less friction, such that more people can come to, to a consensus based on math rather than based on politics. And that is, I think what we're seeing, like starting to really transform these nation, whether they're nation states, like starting central bank digital currencies in terms of what we talked about last year of like, how mm -hmm. are they competing on a different level? But what, what, what I think governments should, should really start to like take note of is much more of the applications that are being built on top of these layers, like DAOs and different kind of smart contracts in, in order to kind of trade things between one another. Those I view as kind of like implicitly ever more powerful of like, you're not just providing people a next generation internet. It's like there are now the next generation applications already running on top of that internet. And hopefully it could be certainly as seamless as possible and use them as an easy way as possible. But, you know, that'll always be kind of a, a catch up process in terms of, okay, how can we very quickly onboard 7 billion people to a new platform? Like mm -hmm. how fast can you get there in terms of like, does everyone need a mobile phone? Does everyone need, you know, connection to, to the internet? Can you do things offline? You know, we've got really kind of be able to bridge a lot of different gaps that are existent today in today's infrastructure, whether that be kind of like internet that's traversing through the sky with something like Starlink or through the ground in terms of, you know, uh, wires underneath uh, the ocean. Like, mm -hmm. you know, there are different trade-offs of like transferring information to and from these different places in different ways. So it's kind of like, that's still a, a not an answered question. Uh, <laughs> but at least crypto kind of lays the foundation for money to be sent across those rails rather than just data. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's important that it's both. Um, like, uh, uh, to get back to whatever, to, to get to the, the root of your question again of like, um, helping, uh, uh the, the banking the unbanked and all that kind of stuff. Like, who does, who does it help and all that kind of stuff? Um, and I think that the, 
like it's it's very easy to answer like oh uh, you know it helps people in third world countries or it's very easy to answer like it helps um, you know people who don't have a, a, a housing infrastructure or a banking infrastructure that is solid or a currency that's solid but like it helps a lot more than that. Um, <laughs> like, uh, uh, like the whole reason that like I got into crypto, um, like I was running a digital marketing company at the time and we had uh, essentially three clients break their contracts at the same time, right? Like one uh, declared bankruptcy, um, one was successfully sued by their ex-partner um, and the third was from Alabama and just decided that because we were in uh, uh, California, they just didn't have to pay us. Um, and that's when Morgan told us about Ethereum and smart contracts. And it was just kind of like, holy shit, like price of this currency aside or whatnot. Like if you could just, we could have just locked that contract down or validated that the the company that, you know, we had a contract with actually had the money that they said they did. <laughs> like our small business would have been saved, right? Like we would have saved 30 grand mm -hmm. um, or we would have never made the contracts in the first place. Um, and so... I think that the applications of it really goes far beyond just people who don't have a bank account or anything like that. Like it goes towards people who are trying to build something or people who are trying to make something and just need some ver verification or validation that the things that they don't aren't experts in or whatever will work and are true and are truthful. Uh, that's pretty good. Uh, you know, I think constantly you hear of the, like, the small business struggling to find funding or have these lines of credit or just to stay alive. Um, and I think like politics does play a large part in that sometimes. Um, even what you just said, like if there's a smart contract, basically both parties just agree based upon a set of rules and there's no, Hey, I get a vibe from this guy, that thing. There's no interview. There's no, Hey, he knows this person or that person. It's just, uh, do, do they meet this criteria or not? Um, and I think that's a, that's a pretty powerful thing that I don't think we've had, like, that's never been attached to money before. There's always been these other connotations with it. Um, mm, mm. Morgan, go ahead. I know, I know that sparks something in you. You know, I was reading one of these Twitter threads this morning, you know, getting my daily news updates in terms of like what's going on in crypto Twitter. And I read um, this thread that was kind of describing what we should expect from ETH Denver. Like what, what are some of the major topics mm. that are going to be expressed there? And one of them was attestations. So basically saying that, yes, I've done something or yes, I believe in something or I've completed something uh, in terms of being able to have this kind of social identity. And it kind of brought me back to the hacker days in the sense that like reputation is something that was a foundation for whatever type of forum or group that you were a part of. And reputation was like, it could not be manufactured as potentially kind of, mm -hmm. as it could be as easily manufactured in today's world in terms of social media. And so that level of reputation, like through attestations and through kind of on-chain identity is like starting to come back into the fold. And it's kind of exciting from the standpoint that honesty, if you are an honest participant, like that will finally be valued again. So your honesty in terms of having a positive attribute of whether that's staking or something else on chain in terms of like having activities on chain is now going to be valued more highly than lying or manufacturing something else. Like this aspect of a you know, digital identity and on-chain metrics for your wallets, you know, yes, it has kind of, I'd say, downside effects of like 
certain levels of privacy and control there. And we really kind of need to close, keep a close eye on make, making tools available that maintain privacy, um, particularly for you know a user base that might not care about it yet. Um, but at the same time, other than that, like having reputation built into a lot of these ecosystems would be like incredibly valuable. You, you, you can you know, build up your reputation in the crypto world by being an honest participant. And that could, that's kind of like next generation resume of like transacting in this world. Uh, would, it would be kind of like a really positive thing to be able to take from um, you know, what it kind of started out as in terms of like reputation on, you know, say between hacking groups and the dark net and the internet um, to now kind of bring it into like using it as a positive force to create change. That would be like <laughs> complimentary to kind of what you both are saying. Yeah, it's, it's actually kind of interesting. Like I was at the um, an Orbitals meetup on Sunday um, and uh, there, were, there were there were a bunch of people there who were uh, uh, much younger, right? Like college age or even like below college age, um, which did, very young. Um, and like one of the things that they were saying is like, oh, like who even uses Litecoin? Like why bother using Litecoin or Dogecoin? Like there are so many better networks and like and things like you might as well use Polygon or Solana or whatever. And like, I think it leans into the reputation aspect of things. It's just like Litecoin and Dogecoin have been around for eight, nine, 10 years. They've pretty much proven themselves as pretty solid networks. Like you, no one's getting rug pulled out of Litecoin. No one's getting rug pulled out of, out of Dogecoin. It works, it's quick. It gets things from point A to point B. And like, I think there's, I don't know, I was just having like a, a, a lot of conversations about the importance of longevity, um, especially mm -hmm. in, in crypto and how that leans into having a solid reputation and being uh, uh, usable. Yeah, and you bring up a very good point about, you know, having verifiable social reputations. Uh, and I'll give you like an analogy. So I used to drive a cab back when there were cabs, right? Mm -hmm. uh, back in the day. And I cannot tell you how many very dangerous people I picked up because all they needed was to call the phone number and have cash, right? Uh, you fast forward to Lyft and Uber, I never had one single problem. Why? <laughs> because everyone's got a profile. There's their ID, uh, credit card on file. Do you know they have the money? Um, and like if something happens, everybody knows which parties were involved, right? It's like a completely different setup. Just those one or two things. Um, so if you talk about having like a, a reputation on chain, you know, I know you've talked about Quadrata where you can, you know, use your, your KYC, you know, into your ID, take your selfie. Everyone knows it's you. You are the person who owns that wallet, right? It ties you to that. Uh, and as things go further, even both of you are developers. Like if there's somehow uh, some kind of contract, you uh, pass a test and says, yes, these guys are developers. They know how to code, right? And that's part of your uh, persona attached to that wallet, attached to you as a person. Like, that to me is, uh, you know, infinite usefulness, uh, like, you know, for resume or even college credits. Let's say you, you got a master's degree and that's part of your online wallet is you can, you can now have, uh, these layers of trust built in programmatically where you don't have to call a university and say, Hey, we need this guy's official transcripts to verify this thing. It could be done you know, on a technology level. Um, so that's pretty yeah. cool. Like you just inspired me there. I, I've got another analogy for you. It's like having 100 lawyers at your disposable 
for free 24-7. Like that, you can design any type of contract. You can design any type of relationship you want. You can guarantee mm -hmm. certain things. You can require like payment up front for certain things and then build third-party attestations for external third parties who need to review things. You can build every single one of those smart contracts and basically have a team of 100 lawyers behind you at all times. Like that is mm. like incredibly powerful like notion that you could have inside a mobile phone if it's just connected to the internet. Like that's insane. That's an insane amount of value to have at your fingertips. And if you could enable someone who doesn't have access to any of that, let alone, you know, going to uh, and finding and then hiring a lawyer, like you've now just kind of flipped the script on like, uh, what it costs to be able to build these different types of structures and relationships and communities. Like it's now kind of a builder's world. And that is mm. the most exciting thing. It's like the world has just become Minecraft and you're now just kind of exploring it and setting up different types of features and connections and relationships. That is kind of the level of interconnectability that I think that we are entering in with like the, the adoption and level of sophistication that these contracts are enabling like throughout society, whether that's on like a real world asset basis or even just kind of a crypto asset basis in terms of like native crypto, like both equally exciting uh, in terms of like adapting our world to kind of internet 3.0. I love that. I got two things for you though. Um, one, I, I didn't know you used to drive a cab. Um, you should, yeah. uh, my dad would love that. Um, he used to, his first company that he started was a cab company. Um, what, that, RF? Yeah, yeah, hey, <laughs> um, and I think he he probably experienced a lot of the crap that he experienced. <laughs> oh, <laughs> desperate times, man. Yeah, it was hilarious. <laughs> um, but he he uh, uh, so he was an entrepreneurship professor um, and like taught a lot of students, like mentored a lot of students, and like a lot of people who were building small businesses and whatnot. Um, and there was one story that he told while I was still in high school um, that was it was about w one of his students like had some idea that was you know great that he thought was wonderful and whatnot. Um, and he went over to one of his friends and was just like, "Hey, I recommend you sit down with him, just like." talk to him and like um hear him out because like i think it it's it's solid um and the kid walks in and he's just got like he's got tattoos everywhere uh, uh his like knuckles say fuck you um kind of thing <laughs> um and the friend like who was a very close friend right like just like shoved him out of the office he's just like this kid's a fuck like absolutely not like get him out of here um and it was like three or four months later, but the kids sold the idea for like three and a half million um, or four million mm. or something like that. Um, nothing crazy, but just like, you know, solid. Um, so pretty dope. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that's what crypto kind of does a really good job of is that like it can analyze sort of an idea, right? Or a certain mm -hmm. perspective of things or a certain class of things, but it doesn't analyze things like how you look or things like uh, 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 where you were born or weird mm -hmm. things, right? That really shouldn't be included in the classification in the first place. Um, Cause it really is just about the product. It's about your building. It's about the thing that you're doing. Um, that is interesting. And that's, that's totally what I feel like too. Um, you know, when talking about funding, like small businesses and things like that, like, there, there is that like instant assessment where like the person is almost the who is almost greater than the what, uh, 
in some of that. Now it's different. It's completely different. Where like the Who, you may not even really see beyond like what they're capable of building. Uh, and I, I know that's your point. And that's, I think that's a very powerful one. Um, it makes decentralized finance sound exciting. Uh, but let me get to like a practical question here. Like, so, you know, let's say you, someone wants to participate in decentralized finance. So like, yeah, this sounds cool. Like, I like this. How do you take your US dollars and what is the, like, how do you get it into a decentralized finance protocol or get it to participate in some of these, you know, like money earning products? Like, how do you go, how do you go about that? Mm. I mean, we, we can start just kind of like rattling off some, some pathways. Um, I certainly don't know all of them. One of the ones that is cheap or is kind of like more of the, uh, on, in terms of like, if I were to convert dollars into crypto, the cheapest way I found is to be able to convert dollars into a stable coin. So that means true USD, USDC, you know, USDT, uh, BUSD, uh, and anything else that you can find where in terms of like you, if that provides that one-to-one -one conversion rate and then utilizing kind of in, you know, crypto applications to be able to convert that into something else. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, there are, there are, are pools of assets um, that where you can kind of convert those stable coins into your wildest streams in terms of whether that's like wrapped Bitcoin or Ethereum or Link or some of these other tokens. I think it gets a little bit more interesting when you start looking at other layer ones like Bitcoin and Litecoin in terms of you mentioned earlier. Like how do you e easily and seamlessly convert between Bitcoin, native Bitcoin and Ethereum, right? And we're then stuck with this problem of having to use centralized exchanges to be able to bridge these networks together, right? Whether that's on a mobile phone or a computer or, or wherever, ultimately you're, you're looking at a provider who you know, has a Bitcoin wallet and has kind of an Ethereum wallet and is making the swap themselves in the background because there aren't a lot of decentralized alternatives to be able to bridge those networks directly. Now, that being said, there are a lot of like applications that are being developed which try and bridge those networks together directly. So, you know, on Avalanche, you can directly deposit Bitcoin and as, we'll get, as, as a result, get kind of like tokenized Bitcoin on the Avalanche network, right? And that's kind of like one pathway to be able to do that. And it's very kind of like a bespoke system of like converting one thing into another, only supporting, you know, specific few assets here and there. We are not yet at the point where I can say, I want to convert native Bitcoin into native Ethereum and have it cost, you know, less than 10 basis points in terms of less than a tenth of a percent. Like we do not exist with that kind of level of capability in terms of like using smart contracts and using on-chain applications. We have to be able to use, utilize centralized exchanges for that right now. The good part of that is that there are a shit ton of them and you can deposit assets onto them and withdraw your assets off relatively seamlessly in terms of like, I'd say within a day or within a week. And it's not this kind of this long period of time where you have to deposit things, wait a month, and then pause them and withdraw them afterwards. It's a process that you can do and accomplish within kind of a given amount of time frame that's reasonable. And so the important part, obviously, part of that is to like be able to take your assets off uh, in mm -hmm. terms of use them and put them to use and interact in DeFi. Um, but there, but there are kind of a lot of ways uh, to be able to convert that now. Now, I think 
Taylor will have like a fantastic response as to like how those waves are decreasing and shifting before our eyes. And so, you know, you can touch a little bit more on that. <laughs> well, I mean, I was actually going to uh, uh, mention, um, I mean, I think that the, the whole centralized versus decentralized thing actually becomes problematic in this instance, um, right? Like um, one of the tools that we were trying to integrate initially was MoonPay. Um, and MoonPay like integrates with Apple Pay and a whole bunch of things to be able to easily convert you into cryptocurrency. It looks great, product's slick, I tried to use it and uh, my bank denied me. Not MoonPay, but my bank uh, denied the transaction. I've tried like seven different times, but I could not get it to go through. And I think that that's where you, like, that's the failure point, right? It's not necessarily does an on-ramp exist. It's does the thing before the on-ramp allow you to do it? Um, and that's where you kind of run into the issue, right? Totally. Yeah, I'd say that's a big problem. I've actually run into that with MoonPay also using uh, trying to go just straight from like a debit card to buy an NFT on OpenSea, uh, where like sometimes it's cool, sometimes it's not. Um, and it, that's the limitation we're at right now, right? Well, and, and, you know, it's a limitation that like a lot of things have. Um, like a little bit ago, we were talking about what, like if you wanted to go from U.S. dollars to Taylor Swift tickets to Belgian chocolate <laughs> or whatever, right? Um, mm -hmm. Like if that's the on-ramp or whatever that you're going to take. Um, in order to get Taylor Swift tickets, <laughs> uh, you got to go to, the, to, to StubHub. Like you yeah. do, that's the only location. And if StubHub says, hey, you can't have it, or StubHub gets to say, hey, I'm going to charge you 30% in fees or whatever. And then, you know, from there, you take it off of StubHub and then you go onto the street and you sell it for some Belgian chocolate or whatever. Um, but like, it's that, that is the same sort of issue um, that you encounter. It's just in finance instead of, I don't know, for a concert. Yeah, one of the things that, I mean, this kind of like hopscotch related, one of the things that, we had to be able to mandate from the beginning of Hopscotch was that we were only going to interact with products that we could settle, products that we could withdraw from an exchange and put on our own wallets. Like we couldn't trade something at StubHub because, you know, that's a StubHub ticket. There are, you know, you got to onboard the person to StubHub that you want to transfer it to. There are so many kind of like restrictions to be able to interact with something like that. You know, we don't mm -hmm. trade futures because those aren't settleable. I can't withdraw kind of that position immediately. It just doesn't make sense. We don't use options in terms of like manufacturing um, different kind of levels of risk on our platform. It's like we need to be able to use the physical items and move them around. That's become like so important. And it's kind of like that's, that's something crypto provides that, you never had before in terms of like to be able to take delivery of your assets and store them yourself without someone else. And no matter what, someone can't crack that code or kind of break into that bank vault without breaking everyone's bank vault. And then we have a much bigger issue. Not that that won't happen, but like, <laughs> then it's like everyone's problem. Uh, and, and, and that was like the biggest thing, you know, just in saying, just kind of laying down the law in terms of like, we are not going to trade things that we can't take delivery of. And, and, and nor do we want to be able to provide products to our customers that they can't take delivery of. And we want to encourage taking delivery of them. Like it is one of the most powerful aspects of crypto in terms of like this element of property. And we want to be able to push that forward rather than kind of push it back. 
right? We want to enable it rather than kind of go against it and say, oh, you should, you should, you should keep everything uh, on our platform so that we have access to it. You know, so like, it should be movable. You should be able to kind of easily move things on and then easily move things off. That has got to be like one of the best parts of these different crypto platforms moving forward is like the ease of use, not just from like, hey, can I convert one thing into another, but the ease of like transferability. Can I deposit things and withdraw things like in as easy manner as possible? Oh. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah, which has its own which has its own complications, right? Like Morgan, you brought up initially like the best part about crypto is that you know you get to sort of be your own bank. And like in my opinion, that's also kind of the worst part about crypto is that you have to be your own bank. Um and like it just it it requires a lot of thought, requires being careful, it requires uh, uh, sending test transactions all the time. It requires validating everything and making sure you entered all the numbers correctly. Like there's there's complication that comes with that that's going to go away in you know five or ten years and stuff like that. But it's still nerve wracking in a way, um, especially since there's nobody on the other end who can help you take it back <laughs> if you do something <laughs> wrong. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a good point too. Is that uh, you know there's there's a little bit of like education that goes into it as well. It's like how do I send things from one place to another, and uh, you know this kind of segues into like a, the kind of one of the next questions I had too is you know once you do have funds, uh, you know in a wallet and you're ready to participate with like a decentralized protocol, you know like some of the more popular things are like staking or yield farming, like what is this process to a user and like, how is it that they benefit from this and what are the, maybe the risks of it? Yeah. I mean, risks and rewards. Right. And mm -hmm. I think one of the most important aspects that we've learned in crypto over the past year, or maybe past six months is that we're kind of past the phase of DeFi farming and DeFi farming was this concept that, You'd be able to use these services and just for the act of using them, you'd get paid in like a native token that you could then profit off of. So it's kind of like jump starting these protocols and getting them active and, and testing them out and figuring out all the bugs was uh, profitable. And so you could use these services on a daily basis and make money. And it kind of ushered in this new job description of being a DeFi farmer. Now, fast forward to today, that's a little bit less the case simply because these protocols have become a little bit more robust. They've reduced the amount that they're spending on testers, if you kind of think of it like that. And so now it's much more about whether you want to be able to take the risk, sorry, whether you want to take the risk of using these services and what risks do you want to take? And in terms of like the general spectrum, the more risk you take, the higher reward you might receive. But at the same time, you know, those funds could get rugged, they could get eliminated, they could get withdrawn or stolen. You know, the, the, the higher reward often indicates, you know, higher risks associated with that. Now, different applications have different risks altogether, you know, whereas some have something called like an impermanent loss risk such that your funds could actually decrease, whereas others don't, where, you know, as long as a smart contract isn't hacked in some way that's unforeseeable, your funds will always increase in value. Um, and they have just different trade-offs between every single application. And I think that's part of the realm where we have just begun to see the development of that relationship between risk and reward and making that scalable 
in a system, take for example, MakerDAO, uh, in terms of like on the billions of dollars of scale versus at the smallest level in terms of like a community DAO, how do you kind of incentivize activity and involvement in whatever you're trying to build? Um, and, at the, and at the same time, kind of have people be able to profit from that activity in terms of like a job. Uh, so it's kind of like a part-time job, job versus full-time job. And they, you've got to be able to like find your way into these communities, understand what they're trying to do and operate and understand the risks kind of like at the peer-to-peer -peer level, uh, which is really hard to do and it's time consuming right now. So that yield that you can gain from, you know, putting your cryptocurrency to work can be magnitudes greater than putting it in a bank account in terms of what the bank is paying you for it. And that is what I think has a lot of people excited just from the yield standpoint of crypto is that, hey, I can earn a hundred times more than those funds sitting in a bank account. That is worth the risk of supporting this decentralized protocol in this specific way, right? So the, the, the risk is, hey, I might you know lose funds based on X, Y, and Z, um, but those might be the exact same risks that you're experiencing in the CFI world in terms of mm -hmm. like that bank might get robbed. Maybe it's not FDIC insured. Maybe it's, you know, greater than 250,000. I don't know. There's a kind of a lot of situations there. Whereas DeFi, you know, has completely different trade-offs, right? And you get rewarded by having a yield that's often a hundred times more. And to be able to understand those risks is now kind of like, the much more important layer of, of DeFi and how it's moving forward is like, all right, risk reduction is extremely important. Risk diversification, extremely important. And being able to educate a user on that is maybe the most important thing of all in terms of like getting someone comfortable using your platform. And, you know, in terms of like, if you go through some of Hedgehog's docs in terms of like describing some of these protocols and applications and tokens, it'll walk you through, hey, this one might have a permanent loss. This one might not. This is the trade-off of using this one versus that one. And so it can kind of mm -hmm. break down what are the benefits of using one thing versus the other. Yeah, I think that's a really good mm -hmm. way to put it. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's really no different from CFI in a lot of ways, right? It's it's just risk, um, just risk and appetite. Um, like if you look at even something like Celsius, which was a crypto company, but it was a centralized company, right? They were um, offering very high yields on tokens, um, stuff like that. And yes, they, they ended up having their own set of issues. Um, but like it was its own version of risk um, it is less so than some DeFi companies, but certainly its own version. Um, and then you get the complete other end of the spectrum where you have something like putting it into an actual bank um, or into a real uh, uh, entity like US bank or something like that. Um, and in those instances, like there's very little risk, um, but you also get almost no reward. Like you could have what, like 50K in a bank account and receive 25 cents as an interest payment um, or something like that. And that's because Minus the bank inflation. is... <laughs> What's that? Minus inflation. Minus inflation, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that's just because the bank is, is taking all the rewards for themselves. Um, and so there's mm -hmm. certainly a balance there. Um, and I mean, you could look into uh, something like bonds or whatever, have a little bit... Uh, more of a reward and also a little bit more of a risk. And you just have this scaling aspect of risk versus uh, safety. Um, so I don't know, like the whole point of that is just that like for anybody who's uh, uh, finds crypto daunting, um, just 
conceptualizing it as it's the exact same thing, but built a little bit different or validated by more people or more transparent or something like that, I think is an easier way to picture it than necessarily this complicated um, set of programmatic rules that uh, uh, only people who understand like nine programming languages understand or something like that. I think it's good. Yeah, I'm trying to think like how to phrase that. It's, it's very much like the risks aren't new, but the rewards are new because it's removing the intermediaries who were reaping all of the rewards before. So if, yeah. if the bank is, is the one earning that 3% on your cash instead of you earning that you know fraction of a percent, it's now taking that 3% and distributing it back to you. Like you are, you are doing the work of the bank or that smart contract is doing the work of the bank. And so that reward you're now able to take part of. The risks, all right, you know, whether that smart contract is, is lending to someone versus someone else, the risks are very much understood and the same. And, and some of them are new, but, 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 but most of them are, you know, I'd say very well understood. But the reward is now magnified because you're removing that counterpart from, from their activity. And you're able to, to connect to, you know, millions of people anyways. You know, you, you don't have to do the work of finding the people who are, want to take on the other side of that trade that, that is done by the network and done by the smart contract and activity. And whether that's their discord or promoting it on Twitter, you know, those methods of communication are, are viable and they're kind of multidisciplinary. So like you have some, some foothold in, ter in terms of like relying on that return of investment on a more consistent basis, like ever more so than maybe on a bank where you know, something bad can happen or that bank can default or that bank can make risky loans and, and not have the collateral to back it up or you know, any, any, anything that goes wrong in terms of like a financial recession or depression, you, know, you don't wanna have exposure to. And so I'd say that's, that's another aspect of like how DeFi is very C different than, than CeFi is that you know, in CeFi, there is a large friction to be able to move assets from, from one asset into another. You know, whether that's with fees or just from sheer like the platform that you might have money on. Whereas in DeFi, with the click of a button, I can convert that USDC into, you know, wrapped Bitcoin. I can convert it into hopefully Taylor Swift tickets soon or Microsoft <laughs> stock soon. I mean, those Taylor Swift tickets are going to be like the investment of the future in terms of like on-chain NFTs. Like that, that's where I want my money. You know what I mean? Like you can make that decision in a split second. Whereas in CeFi, you know, that takes a day to be able to be able to convert. Or, and it takes three different platforms with three different accounts and the login for one of the accounts you forgot the password of and you've got to remember that password oh shit it's on an old email address which is backed up by my friend's phone and not my phone uh and the 2fa is actually on a yubi key that my mom's got and it's just like you go down this rabbit hole of like this is a shit situation <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh that's good um you know, it is, you do bring up a good point. Like all of these, all of these products and these things that seem so complicated, like they are already happening. Like they mirror like a centralized finance product kind of already. Uh, and it's, I think that's what people like about cryptocurrency in one way is if you've never had exposure to those like kind of financial products or financial concepts, they're somewhat easier to understand when they're democratized and there's so many people participating in it. There's so many people talking about it. And when they're tangible. Um, right. When you, you, anybody who has access to the internet can participate, right? Like then all of a sudden you're part of the system. Um, that's a good point. And so I, I guess, uh, you know, as far as like some of these products go, like 
you know, like one of the more popular is like a liquidity pool or like a farm. Like what, how would you describe a liquidity pool and what is going on there? Mm. Yeah, definitely people have much better descriptions of this, you know, on the internet. My <laughs> definition of, of, of a liquidity pool uh, would be a group of assets. And sometimes there's one asset and sometimes there's multiple different assets. So two, three, or a combination or a basket of assets, which help enable the conversion from one to another. So say you've got a liquidity pool between uh, USDC and TUSD, two stable coins that are pretty much marked at a dollar. And you've got a million dollars worth of USDC and a hundred dollars worth of TUSD. That conversion rate, you still want to be the same, but maybe it's skewed a little bit because you've got such a large amount of one versus such a small amount of the other. It's kind of like the relationship of how you can make sure to trade at efficient and fair prices um, while also complementing the supply of both assets. So there are different, when we talked about risks, one of the things we talked about was impermanent loss. And it's something that's kind of often joined into this conversation of liquidity pools, mm -hmm. um, simply because when you provide assets into say a liquidity pool, you might have this risk associated with those assets where say you provide that USDC and as a result, you know, USDC gets banned next week by uh, the SEC and ultimately goes to zero, right? Kind of, you've just, you are kind of our shit out of luck in this situation. You know, you might've been profiting off of all the trading that happens back and forth those between those two currencies in terms of, you know, getting some of that yield um, in terms mm -hmm. of participating in that activity, but you now kind of suffer the consequences of having provided that USDC into that liquidity pool uh, because that's now kind of not worth as much um, in terms of, you know, the relationship between that and TUSD. So it's, it's, it's a bunch of assets or a group of assets, sometimes one, sometimes multiple that interact on in a very specific way. Often that's with conversion, converting them or trading them. And you're reaping some of the rewards with based on some of that yield. But at the same time, you have kind of like different risks to maybe what that contract is doing with its liquidity pools and liquidity like runs crypto. So liquidity, whether it's you know Uniswap protocol or another protocol, the amount of assets held in these pools dictates like the prices you're going to get, how much you can convert, at, you know, uh, when you can convert them, you know, what yield they're getting, how much yield you're distributing across of you know whoever else is providing that liquidity. Um, it often comes into play when you look at like AML as well in terms of like anti-money laundering. Is your money tied up with someone who's interacting on chain in a malicious way? Do you want you know, how is that, how should that be tracked or how should that relationship occur? Um, it also comes into like leverage. You know, some people use liquidity pools in terms of like leveraged collateral um, so that you can make even more trades off of the same collateral. And with given rule sets, you try and make that as safe as possible with like new applications like GMX. And so, you know, liquidity pools, when it comes down to it, it's like, that's what's at stake. That's what's being risked. Um, that's what's enabling the fuel for a lot of these applications to be able to transact and operate at scale to be able to provide you know, services for, say, maybe a million people right now. Um, and those liquidity pools will very much have to increase drastically 
um, and or kind of like new DeFi primitives, primitives be developed, which enable them to use the same collateral and magnify and leverage kind of its abilities to be able to scale to you know the next 10 million users or 100 million users or a billion users. And so liquidity, when it comes down to it, like it is absolutely critical to the foundation and function of a lot of these crypto, crypto, crypto applications. So from like a user level, it's like, I'm going to put in my funds to help support USDC, USDT swaps, right? And in exchange, the yield is a percentage of fees on those on trading from that platform, uh, from that particular set of assets, right? Like, that's why there's so many, like you could, uh, so you take your USDC, USDT, and you link it up, right? And that's like the asset that you stake on this protocol and in exchange they say hey thanks for you know supporting the swaps of these two assets in exchange you receive uh, a little piece of all the transaction fees stuff like that that's the that's the benefit right i mean i think uh, actually morgan your starting example was really solid of uh, if you have a million dollars in one asset and a hundred dollars in the other asset um it, what does it take to to send that entire market to zero right it takes a hundred dollars like one person with a hundred bucks can just destroy the market and just run train, just like buy a hundred bucks, sell a hundred bucks, buy a hundred bucks, and just like absolutely flip flop things back and forth. And so being a part of a liquidity pool, they would say, hey, we don't have enough of this one asset that we only got a hundred bucks in. Like we want more safety for this market. We want more, we want this price to be a little bit more stable. And we don't want somebody who just has a hundred bucks to be able to come in and just like, control and manipulate the price. Um, and so they're saying, hey, we'll pay you a little bit. We'll give you some of the fees. We'll give you some of the the revenue that we would be earning just to make sure that there isn't a bad actor who can sort of come in and just wipe the, the slate clean. Yeah, and uh, so like uh, the, in that same example, like with this protocol, maybe they uh, have, they only have like a million dollars to start this uh, financial product. But now they can democratize and say, you know, if you as a user want to hold your funds with us, we can all act like the bank. We can all, uh, you, you know, uh, source these financial products or we can we can all do lending or whatever it is and we can all share in the rewards. Um, and that's kind of the heart of this thing, too, right, is that, you know, you don't have to be this huge conglomerate to start something that's, you know, a good idea that people want to sign on to could also take off. I think that's the best part of it that you, that you nailed on in terms of like, you can jumpstart and bootstrap a protocol with just code, you know, with just words on a page, it can become the most exciting and usable application ever because you don't need, you know, the billion dollars to be able to launch into the world. The world can provide the billion dollars because it is incentivized to do so inside the primitives that you design. So you can kind of be the, the roller coaster tycoon artist of the future uh, in terms of like getting people to go towards, you know, your amusement park uh, without having to build all the rides and, you know, build the concession stands and make the popcorn. Uh, that all will happen, you know, naturally or organically because people will want to come to your location because they're, you know, they, they find it, you know, beautiful, thrilling, adrenaline rush or whatever it might be in terms of like what you're providing in terms of your product. Yeah, and, mm. and I think the interesting part of crypto is that you can utilize someone else's theme park, 
um, like one of the one of the absolutely the most fascinating um, uh, uh, features that I ever read about was uh, uh, was a coin called Komodo. Um, it still exists. They did one of the first atomic swaps um, between Litecoin and Komodo and whatnot. Um, but the way that they secured their chain was that they put their block information onto Bitcoin. That's it. like that's it. They they, they immense mm. they they. they I don't know, multiplied their security by hundreds of thousands of a percent um, just by utilizing another chain that exists and utilizing some of the features that have been built by somebody else. Um, mm. And I think that's really where you get that sense of community from crypto is that these projects are not closed, right? They're, they're used and you, can, and you can use them in creative ways and you can find these sort of unique ways of, of just, I don't know, leveraging a certain feature or leveraging a, a, a certain aspect of one chain on a different one to do something that it really wasn't intended to do, but it works well for, um, which is wild. That is wild. Uh, and very cool that like it, we kind of, everybody kind of builds off each other, right? Like mm -hmm. most of these, most of these codes are open source and you can look at them. And uh, even most of like everything on Ethereum is, pretty much open source too, isn't it? Uh, that's like part of the deal. Uh, let's talk about too, like, you know, let's say there, there is all these cryptocurrency projects, like how do they make money? Like what's, how do they make revenue, these these projects? Yeah, I mean, certainly, I mean, the, no, go ahead. No, there you go. All right. Um, I mean, like certainly uh, uh, the easy way is uh, uh, mining fees. Right. Um, you have a bunch of people mm -hmm. who are validating all of the transactions and they get paid a little bit. And sort of that's like the main traditional way uh, uh, that a chain makes money is that they have uh, uh, validators and uh, uh, people earn money just by saying, hey, yes, you do have uh, uh, one Bitcoin to send or yes, you do have uh, uh, 19 wax to send or yes, you or no, you don't have uh, uh, any Litecoin. So, no, you can't send this thing and just validating and keeping everything secure. Um, but like that's sort of the, the, the infrastructure aspect of things, right? Where that's like the base layer um, where I think we're, you know, everything is sort of just moving towards is that these companies make money just by being a good business and just by providing an asset that doesn't currently exist or providing a service mm -hmm. that uh, uh, certainly um, helps a ton of people. I mean, like we talked a little bit earlier about smart contracts and how that would have helped a digital, my, you know, digital marketing company. And just, just in terms of securing your own contract. And uh, uh, certainly you can look at freelancers or NFTs and be like, yeah, this business here is allowing artists to sell their art and to be able mm -hmm. to connect to an audience and connect to people who actually want to purchase their art and use it. And, and you have um, certainly like, different aspects of uh, 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 insurance even, um, where uh, there's one DAO that I forget the name of right now, but they are essentially just a collective that helps provide health insurance and uh, unemployment insurance for freelancers, where that is a very hard market to get into unless you're within a big group of people. Um, and so you're slowly moving away from the infrastructure aspect of things, which is much more like a banking fee or a, uh, 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 I don't know, like a credit card fee or something like that. And moving towards, you know, real products and real things that people use, which is cool. 
Yeah, that is cool. Like more of like a exchange of service and or goods for payment mm-hmm. versus just the movement of this money making yeah. some kind of revenue. I mean, um, it's like what Morgan said earlier, right? Like if I had, if I could, if I could pay five bucks to have a hundred lawyers at my fingertips, like who are experts in X, true. Y, and Z, like, hell yeah. Like, absolutely. That's an easy decision to make, right? Totally. Yeah. And just, I mean, with every product, like it either saves you time, saves you money or saves you both, or it provides you something that you didn't have before, whether that's maybe like nutrient, like nutrients in terms of like to eat it, to eat something or drink something. Uh, in terms of like a fundamental level, like what I think is missing in terms of like our conversation here is that in terms of a lot of projects, how they make money is through their token. Like in terms of like the majority of DeFi, the majority of like tokens and applications on, on top of these um, layers and ecosystems, ultimately they will have a token at which, you know, is valued at a certain price and is traded on and traded in different locations and has a certain amount of supply or growing supply based on certain metrics. And that is how they make money. Like they will sell their own token or they will utilize their own token in some way to be able to survive and continue on doing business. It's not, it's not a, not necessarily good or bad thing in terms of like to have your own token there. Like it, it, it could be viewed bad in, in terms of like an SEC view or a security standpoint, you know, there's the whole road down in terms of like compliance that we could go down. But I, but I mean more so as like in terms of a, a method of being able to profit and, and kind of maintain what you're doing. It's, it, it's good from the stance that, you know, you've got something people want. People want to be involved and partake in potentially kind of what you're up to. And your token can be incentivized based on your what your platform is actually doing. Meaning the more people that trade on um, a given location, maybe that token earns more value. And so if you're trading there, why wouldn't you want to own a little bit in terms of like, you know, you're helping yourself in terms of like, hey, I will, you know, if because I've got a Target gift card, I will shop at Target more. Like that makes sense. Mm. You know, it's kind of like a, if I enjoy going to target, I'm going to do that. Right. Same type of thing in DeFi, you know, in terms of that token, if I own a little bit of that token, if I'm rewarded from the activity that is experienced on that platform, I'm going to use that over another service. So it's kind of like the best rewards member card, like possible. And (laughs) instead of like target, you know, paying its CEO a hundred million dollars a year, it's now distributed across, you know, a hundred thousand employees and users that maybe interact with it more on a daily basis than kind of just run the company. So it's kind of like, it's got just different incentive mechanisms built into it. But I'd say for like, to answer your question, like the, the most way a lot of crypto companies is to like build a token, build tokenomics behind it and try and architect a solution that benefits you know, whether it's your company or your users or a combination of both, like in the way that you need it to. And mm. tokenomics is like a very particular category and people get it very wrong and other people get it very right. And mm. it's kind of like this creative dance that you do, you know, in crypto to be able to operate in the first place. Like you don't want to be looked upon as a security, but you do want to be able to provide value to people on a consistent basis in terms of that user product. So it's like, you know, how do you do that most effectively? And like tokenomics is continuing to like be very intuitive at the same time as, as inventive. Like it's gotta be like, all right, this makes complete sense. I understand what's going on here, but at the same time it needs to do things in completely new ways because uh, certain relationships aren't as appropriate as, as maybe they were before. Take for example, like mm-hmm. the FTX token or sorry, FTT token in terms of like how that was operated and how that was used. Obviously, in hindsight, not transparent and 
not forthcoming in terms of like what gave that token value, right? In terms of like the collateral on the exchange or, you know, the actual proof of reserves that they would have never done, you know, and versus now when you look at something like maybe OKX, you know, a centralized exchange who does proof of reserves, who has a token that, you know, using it reduces the fees that you have to be able to transact on that exchange. You know, easy to understand benefit of like why that might have value. How much value should it have? That's, you know, that's a completely new thing. That's like, hey, let's look at the balance sheet. Let's look at the income statement. Let's look at what make this, makes this token tick. And at that point, you can kind of make an assumption as to, hey, it might be overvalued, undervalued. Um, but like to be able to start pricing these things, the, fundament the fundamentals ultimately do matter. And I think they matter more in crypto than in traditional finance, which is what makes crypto a little bit more exciting, right? In terms of mm -hmm. like the price being determined by supply and demand rather than by, you know, three market makers that control the market. Like it's just, it's more free. It's more deterministic. You can see who has, who has it and where it is and where it's levered or where being, where it's being used or how many users have it. Um, and the actual kind of metrics that are existing within that side of that application, they just, you have no information to on traditional finance. And so that's the, like the trans quote unquote transparent layer of crypto is that you can see what's going on. It's certainly difficult to see some things and like, you know, the, you know we need a thousand more dashboards and a thousand people look, mm -hmm. looking at those dashboards than ever before. But, you know, at least the information is there, right? Whereas not there, you know, that is kind of like the one and zero difference between crypto and, 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 and CFI that like makes things a little bit more dependable. Maybe we don't have the tools to do so right now, but at least, the information is there. At least you can kind of like see it in the first place. It's it's just such an information advantage when it's when it's not there that that kind of leaves everyone out, leaves everyone at a disadvantage. Mm. And that's uh, that brings up like a good point too of like you know who owns these projects, right? Because a lot of them are democratized, and you, anyone can own a piece of it by having a by you know, obtaining tokens or a governance token, things like that. Um, so like on average, like how free are these things or how many people own a cryptocurrency project? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really, it's a really great question. Um, and I think you can honestly, like you can, you can easily equate it to a, a stock and a company, right? Where like there are some stocks that, very much are well distributed. Um, there are lots of people who own them. GameStop would be a great example of that, where the GameStop stock, the GameStop stock is uh, <laughs> a very, just like the, it's democratized, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then you can, uh, uh, you know, look at something else um, like whatever Warren Buffett's company, where it's very much owned by a single entity. And there are mm -hmm. very few, you know, individuals or companies that can even possibly own a piece of it. Um, and you have everything in between. And it's the same with, with crypto, right? Like you have um, the absolute range of projects that are very much, you know, 70, 80, 90% owned by 10 people. Um, and then you have projects that are 70, 80, 90% owned by, you know, hundreds of millions of people. Um, so, um yeah, it kind of just, it depends there. Um, but I think that the, you know, sort of like what Morgan was saying, the beautiful thing is that you can kind of just look at like Etherscan or you can look at these block explorers and be like, oh, there's only 10 people who have this in their wallet 
or there's oh, right. there's hundreds of thousands of people that have this in their wallet, um, and it just makes it a little bit easier to unearth that. Mm -hmm. I was reading something the other day, which was characterizing one of the new NFT marketplaces called Blur. Mm. Uh, it started to kind of gain a lot of traction versus OpenSea uh, in terms of being kind of a, the number one um, NFT marketplace people were transacting at. And that's weird. How does anybody see the art? Pardon? How does anybody see the art? It's blurred. You... Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Sorry, Morgan. <laughs> you, you can keep going. I'm smart. That joke. That joke. <laughs> and there were like 500 addresses that make up 95% of the activity on all of Blur because mm. they were farming kind of their native token or kind of incentive mechanisms in terms of being able to interact with it. And, mm. you know, that project, I forget, you know, the value of it, but it's something like it's between 500 million and, and a billion in terms of like the value at the time, which was extraordinary mm. in terms of like 500 people could manufacture the popularity of a project, you know, with given attributes and, you know, different trade-offs versus OpenSea. Um, but almost market that as a billion dollar entity. So it's kind of like you have that other end of the spectrum Taylor was talking about. And then on top of that, like when you look at some of these exchanges, you know, in terms of the statistics people pull out of their ass of saying like, hey, 10 addresses hold 10% of all Bitcoin. Um, you know, one of those addresses might be Coinbase who has over 100 million users. Like how do you, how do you associate the number of addresses with, you know, the actual amount of value one might hold because it's because it's so easy to create new addresses and send value to them and withdraw value to them and manage them. Um, you, know, you can you can have a million addresses, right? And mm -hmm. you as an individual can be able to do that. You can have a million accounts if you, if you want them and need them or kind of like know how to use them. Like that's possible. So it's it's some of the metrics are kind of like completely fucked up from that standpoint. Um, you know, when you go onto Polygon and you look at you know, who are the holders of these assets, you know, it'll range between, you know, hundred different people and a hundred thousand different people, certainly dependent on the asset. That's like the top and bottom of say these layer twos at this point, you know, very few have more than a million holders and even fewer have more than 10 million holders. Like we haven't even gotten to the point where we have, you know, uh, on one of these layer twos, certainly, you know, a hundred million addresses holding different assets. Like that's, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, one one hundredth of the, po the population in a few years. So, you know, we're very much early from that standpoint of like number of people interacting with, with these assets and, you know, the numbers of users like Facebook still, you know, crushes everyone on like a user metric of having a billion users or whatever it is at this point, a billion, you know, a billion fake users, maybe that's like 250 million real users. I don't know, kind of like the ratio at this point in time. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly it was worse back in the day. I don't know if kind of things have been better. <laughs> Uh, but you know, in terms of like, it's the same type of thing with these on-chain holders. Like I can create two wallets, you know, I can distribute the, you know, hundred dollars I have between those, both, both of those wallets. Now you've got two USDC holders. Like, what does that really mean? Um, which kind of dives back into the aspect of like, Hey, your reputation will start to kind of play a bigger factor in interacting with these networks. And, and, and hopefully, you know, from the most positive experience imaginable from, you know, if you've got reputation on chain, you know, you can you know, potentially kind of be able to interact with these applications in different ways or in safer ways, or, you know, be able to earn more yield, be, 
because you're, you interact with the application on a daily basis rather than on a monthly basis, uh, regardless of the amount that you're transacting. Like if you're using this more and you benefit from it more, maybe you're valued as a customer more than another who's using it, you know, once every year, you know, in terms of like a holiday season or something like, yeah, you know, I think we'll start to just see like the consumer aspect of using this shit conquer everything like user mm -hmm. metrics and individual users and just how it's kind of valued in today's, you know, VC world in terms of like, Hey, how many unique users do you have? How many of them are interacting with your application on a 30 day basis and really setting the value of maybe the token that you have, or, you know, the, 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 the value of your business in a different way. Like you'll start to see that I think more and more and more. What'll be tough is like seeing through all the bullshit of, of crypto of like, can you manufacture this just as easily as you can, you know, manufacture another Facebook like. You know, it needs to be have kind of stronger reputation basis than than being able to just create another Facebook account with a bot and be able to subscribe to it. Like that matters a lot. It, especially mm -hmm. if you're giving away millions and millions of dollars in your application. And 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 like you want to be able to do that, but you also want to be able to verify that those millions of dollars are going towards a million different people and not 100 different people taking advantage of your platform. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that brings up a good point too. Like, uh, you know, anybody could start something like, you know, should I create my own cryptocurrency? Definitely. No. <laughs> uh you know like a lot of people a lot of people create something right and uh there's a lot of people that have these really robust like great ideas right and they they release a white paper and it's like really easy to see that there's this like great roadmap uh other people just create something like with the intention of like stealing a bunch of funds, like something malicious called like a, like a rug pool. Uh, like, you know, why is the community so obsessed with these like rug type situations? Well, cause they, I mean, they suck. Is like the, the fair like, point. That's, yeah. And they're, <laughs> they can be, I mean, they can also be tough to identify, right? Like you are, mm -hmm. As, as, a, as a human, you're excited about something. You see something where you're like, wow, this is, this is really neat. And not too many people know about this. And I would love to just participate and help. And then you get rugged. And that sucks. Um, there's no doubt mm. about that, right? Uh, you see the same thing, you know, with, a I don't know, pyramid schemes or uh, 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 shitty products or something like that. So it's the same sort mm -hmm. of deal. It just, you know, sucks. Yeah. Um, but like, I think that the, that is the beautiful thing about crypto is that like, it kind of is based on the idea. Um, and you have weird things that just gain traction, right? Whether it's banana or Dogecoin. <laughs> Someone's getting like abducted by a UFO. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but like, there, there are things that just like, grab hold of people um, and really gain traction uh, um, just based on sort of this idea or based on this community. Um, and that's mm -hmm. a beautiful thing, right? Um, and I think that the challenge of any of that is doing it in a way that 
you don't screw something up or your community doesn't screw something up, right? Because there are a bunch of rugs that happen that are just due to bad code or just due to, I don't know, a poorly written line or uh, an algorithm that can be taken advantage of or something like that. Um, and that's, 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 I think, where the real risk is. Like there are ways to get around obvious rug pulls, but there are harder ways to get around like inadvertent rug pulls. Mm -hmm. I was talking with someone just yesterday uh, and, you know, this always comes up when chatting in crypto, like the risks associated of creating your own wallet and being your own bank, kind of all the topics that we've been talking about today. And the one thing that, that I say this individual is most knowledgeable at and excited about at the same time is the individual use and kind of like household use of something called MPC, which is multi-party computation. It's kind of a type of security where you can involve more parties to be able to make a decision. And incorporating that idea at a fundamental layer in these, whether that's in these smart contracts or in, you know, the next generation crypto wallet, or, you know, how do you have an advisor be able to advise you on rebalancing your assets from one place to another? You know, how does, how does this relationship between potentially company and consumer is, how is it redefined and on a mathematical level? So like in, on a cryptographic level, you know, on chain, you know, where someone has the ability to sign on your behalf or kind of the ability to participate in your signing process of a decision you're trying to make and distributing the responsibility of being your own bank potentially to other users or other companies who you know you put that trust in. So you know, I think this particularly kind of applies to a company like Hedgehog, you know, in terms of like as they navigate their vision of coming coming on chain in some capacity, how can that they be that kind of like point of advisement for a user navigating this what can be an extremely difficult environment, whether that's converting assets, moving assets, or interacting in, in the thousands of different ways that we'll be able to interact with this stuff in the future. You know, how can, how can you have kind of like a point of authority or experience or skill, or just kind of a second pair of eyes on, on what you're up to. And if you want that level of security, at least make it available. And right now it is like not easily available in terms of like having that third party to be able to help you through this process. So that's what they were mm. particularly excited about when it comes down to an individual level, like some of these tools exist for institutions, like at Hopscotch, we utilize MPC technology to make transfers. And so multiple people have to approve different things, but that tech, tech isn't available to the average day consumer and have using it on a daily basis. It's like, this is so obvious. Everyone can use this, you know, in one way or another. And so as we get into like different Ethereum upgrades and you know, different crypto upgrades, like account abstraction, it makes the possibility of incorporating these tools, you know, that much more accessible and mm -hmm. is the most exciting thing that, um, that I'm certainly looking forward to in the near future of basically bringing in more people to make a decision than just yourself, whether that's your family or your friends or kind of, like I said, with Hedgehog, like that is kind of the future I see in terms of like interacting with crypto. It's, you know, we've got a lot of the great applications already built, but like using them isn't as safe as it should be uh, or as easy as it should be. And so it's kind of like, we need to go to, it's the problem is now onboarding a billion users. How do you do that effectively? You know, you need help. You absolutely need help. Mm -hmm. It's not, it can't just scale by word of mouth forever. You know what I mean? Yeah. We can do a better job and scale faster than that. 
Um, and that's why I see as like hedgehogs potentially greater strength moving forward as, as being kind of this regulated authority to be able to do so and advise you in a way where you still own your own keys, but at least they can help. That's pretty good. So if you were to create like a cryptocurrency, hypothetically, would that be a part of it, you think, MPC? I think, you know, I'd like to think so. Um, I'd like to think that, you know, in terms of, say, Hedgehog's value in that proposition, that the more you utilized Hedgehog to be able to help you in decisions, you know, maybe the more benefit that they got. And that's kind of like, think of that as a very much kind of on a micropayment level of, you know, a penny here or there in terms of assisting you making decisions. You know, they want to be able to support a million users making decisions every day. And so that scales very much with their business of, you know, rebalancing and advising and educating and however they can incorporate that, you know, into the next generation wallets of the future in terms of like the way you interact with crypto, the better. And MPC is just kind of like that next obvious step of, hey, I want to have more people involved in this decision so that kind of like you said earlier, if I, you know, change a letter or change a number, I don't lose all my money, right? You know, that's kind of like, you got to just make it more safe than that. You know, it's just way too easy, whether it's to get rug pulled or hacked or scammed or interact with the wrong project. You know, you've got to have people looking over your shoulder or at least advising you, whether that's in a private centric way or in a way that's, you know, that you want to have happen. Like we're going to have that level of flexibility. Like that's going to happen one way or the other. It's kind of, it's just a matter of time of like how the technology is deployed and kind of what companies are able to scale with that technology to provide that value in that, in the specific ways that users need it, say right now. Mm. I like that. Taylor, uh, last, I'll give you one last question. This is a fun one. Uh, meme, meme coins, good or bad? Uh, I mean, I think they're great, honestly. Like, I think they provide a great, in in most cases, right? The, 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 mm-hmm. um, but they provide a great accessible way to enter crypto. Um, I think Banano is fantastic. I think Dogecoin is fantastic. Um, they're just, they're fun ways to sort of get used to the technology. You can own like a... Well, I guess not anymore, but you used to be able to own like a million Dogecoin and it would cost like 10 bucks. Um, and like it's, I don't know, it's playful. Um, and it introduces mm-hmm. you to technology and introduces you to public addresses and sort of this thing that when you look at something like Ethereum or Bitcoin can feel very, very daunting, right? Like you see that and you're like, oh, I don't, should I do something or I don't know. And I don't know, meme coins, mm-hmm. I think provide a wonderful outlet that just lets you sort of dip your toes. Um, and then they, you know, often expand beyond that, which is kind of fascinating. That's true. What do you think, Morgan? Same? Meme coins I, good? Yeah, I'm a huge advocate. Kind of like what Taylor was saying, they are one of the greatest, I'd say, onboarding tools of, of crypto, uh, you know, better than like a fiat on ramp. If I can send you some banana right now and you can see how fast it was and you now have property instantaneously, that's just like, you know, it's something to wrap your brain around like through the rest of the year. Like, it's just like, mm-hmm. kind of changes what you think about, all right, do I actually own something and how do I own it and what's actually protecting it? And then, you know, I think everyone in crypto goes through these different phases of like, Hey, I get introduced say with, with, 
you know, a meme coin. You know, then I get interested in the technology. How does Bitcoin work? Why do people value it so highly? You know, what, what makes it different than Dogecoin? You know, why isn't a Dogecoin worth, you know, $30,000? And, and maybe it will be. And not to say it won't. Dogecoin, you know, could be the future. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then you kind of get wrapped up into, hey, what can I do with all this technology? I can, you know, utilize 100 person, large law firm, you know, at my disposal 24 seven through smart contracts. And then sometimes you get wrapped, wrapped fully, fully all the way around and go back to Bitcoin in terms of like, all right, you know, we haven't done job number one, which is like create actual money. Like we've done a little bit of everything, but like money is like the, one of the biggest advantages of the crypto movement. And Bitcoin is certainly one of the strongest points of that. You come back around to that. And now we've got ordinals and are starting to do DeFi on Bitcoin, you know, starting to kind of take place in both places. And then you've got, you know, these meme coins, which is the actual introductory aspect of crypto and making it easy to use, which, you know, should be valued a lot higher in that aspect in terms of like getting people involved. It is a, it is an incredible onboarding tool there. Like mm -hmm. you kind of just find yourself going into this like circular pattern of going between, you know, one part of crypto to the other. And it's, it, sometimes it takes like a long time to do that. I know it's certainly taken me years to kind of at least make one full cycle. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that speed of like how fast you're coming around the racetrack is being expedited by a lot of different platforms and protocols, whether that's, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, but more importantly, like applications that you download or wallets that you download mm -hmm. that make this process just like so much easier. I can have a wallet that holds, you know, both Bitcoin and Ethereum and interact with smart contracts and, you know, send meme coins to each other and see NFTs. You know, I, I can do it all. And it can be all, of an, you know, whether that's in one place or between a few applications, like, they're now starting to interact with each other. And now, you know, like you said, kind of bridging some of these different chains, John and Taylor, like whether it's going from like Solana to Tron or from Tron down to Litecoin through Komodo or something like that, you know, you're really just starting to see like a lot of people becoming extremely interested in solving these problems in different ways, whether that's like on a bridge level, on a chain level, on a swap level, on a DAP level, like it's just becoming insane. And because all this stuff is like built I'll say most of it in terms of an open source manner. It, it allows like the Lego blocks to be built on top of each other. It's not like mm -hmm. the TradFi derivatives platforms being built on top of each other, you know, where a trillion dollars of debt becomes a hundred trillion dollars of debt, which becomes a quadrillion dollars of debt. <laughs> it's, 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 it's like the, the economic benefits of having a million people on your platform is now compounded 10 times by applying those, you know, benefits to 10 million people and hundred million people. The more people you get involved, the better prices for everyone. And so it's, it's taking all of those economic benefits and applying them to the actual users rather than the middlemen in the situations that have built them. And so okay. it's just like so magnifying and so amazing to see certainly what's happening today in crypto compared to, you know, five years ago or, or you know, let alone certainly where we were at the beginning. Yeah, man, I love it. Uh, Roller coaster tycoon full yeah. of features. Sometimes when you lay it out, I'm like, woo, that's good. <laughs> Uh, all right, man. Hey, this was awesome. I know we're uh, we're rolling along. Any uh, any final thoughts, Morgan? Anything from you? Hmm. I don't know. I you know one of the most I've been trying to read up on or, um, ordinals uh, as much as possible, and understanding that you know there are, there is there is DeFi coming to Bitcoin sooner rather than later. And that is kind of a very exciting concept that we've seen, not only from a price appreciation side, 
of some of these DeFi aspects of, of Bitcoin, but just from an adaptability side of what I think is viewed as a stubborn chain in terms of Bitcoin. And that, that's, I, view, I say that in a kind of like a most complimentary way in terms of being stubborn mm-hmm. uh, and not changing and, you know, not having to make amendments. Um, that's very, it's very much a choice, right? Whereas with mm-hmm. Ethereum, you make a lot of choices to change a lot, to be able to adapt extremely quickly, you know, very two different ideals of a chain. I think as we see DeFi come to Bitcoin, it'll be fascinating to see like those relationships develop because it'll be very different than how DeFi developed on Ethereum. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what to expect yet. It's kind of like, that is a very much unknown in my mind of like, what is going to happen mm. there? And how is that going to play out? How is it going to interact with, you know, other chains and other layers? And will there be the same type of like multi-layer development ecosystem that kind of Ethereum, Ethereum has with, you know, Optimum, Arbitrum, Avalanche, uh, Starknet, and, and these ZK layers? Will the same kind of approach start to happen on Bitcoin where you have like a lot of different layers that will interact with each other? Um, I don't know. Like, I don't understand the infrastructure enough yet. Uh, and that's very much like from a, from a usability side and from a technical level. Like, it's just, you know, I need to dive into that world and understand it certainly much more than I have now. Mm. Well, that's pretty exciting. I, something's new, newer to you, man. Uh, you're going to have to give us the update after you figure it out. <laughs> How about you, uh, Taylor? Any, uh, any last words? No, I think that covers it. I think that's pretty, Morgan, you did a nice job of ending on a very, very excited note. Um, I'd agree with all of that. It's going to be, I mean, I don't know, it's much like any other day in crypto, like something else, something just new continues to pop up, right? Um, and something exciting mm-hmm. continues to pop up. Um, people use things in different ways and it's, it's fun. I don't know. I like, I like when it's fun. It's cool. Yeah, every day in crypto, some, someone, something will break, someone will get rugged, and something new will be created. Yep. Something amazing. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> awesome. Well, all right. Uh, I'll see you guys on the other side then. Cool.